0: Right. Okay. Let's move to the second part. <laughs> I'll give it a few seconds so that it is easy to cut in yep. half. Yep. And all right. So welcome, folks, to unstandardized English. Now, just so that you know, um, I'm going to put a link below, but. This is really the second half of a conversation that I've been having for the last half an hour with Yassid Ortega. Uh, He is the host of Chasing Encounters, a language podcast that I find very interesting and you should be listening to if you listen to mine. In fact, you probably do. Um, And I encourage you to listen to the first half of the conversation, which again, I will link. And otherwise, we're going to talk a little bit more about Yassid. In this half of the conversation, so thank you you see, for continuing to speak with me.
1: thank you very much for this invitation. this is great to and and I have the pleasure to to be in this podcast with you because you have become sort of like a like a sort of hero slash a great person in the Twitter verse <laughs> of podcasting well that's good
0: to know um, so uh well we'll do this fairly similarly to the conversation we've been having, but basically, why don't you tell uh my listeners, who again are probably some of yours, uh a little bit about yourself, your background, your professional background, um, and you know, where you are today. And I mean that both literally and figuratively.
1: Yeah. All right, hello everybody. Once again, thanks for the invitation. My name is Jacida Ortega. Paez, um, really quick about my name, my first name is Yesid, my last name is Ortega, which is uh, my father's last name, and Paez is my mother's last name. I was born originally in Colombia, uh, in South America, Um yeah, I speak Spanish, Um I live in the United States for 10 years in Chicago, working for a language company for a while, and then I moved to, the, uh, to Canada. 10 years ago, actually, exactly almost 10 years ago in 2010. And then I started my master's at the University of Toronto under the supervision of Jim Cummings. And at that moment, I worked in second language learning at a very young age, meeting babies and sort of preschoolers, how they learn second language, etc. And then after that, I, I, I started uh, the PhD soon after at the same time university and in the same program but now now with a little bit of a twist on comparative international and development education and because my work is related to social justice education in English language teaching in international context specifically in Colombia and so that's that's a little bit of my general background I like to do many things I like reading I like riding my bicycle I like writing poems I make experimental music I paint I do lots of things on my free time. Yeah, is there anything else that you guys wanna know? Well, I mean, that's, I think
0: that pretty much covers it, right? Um, So we'll talk a little bit about um, your language background. You mentioned that you speak Spanish, you were from Colombia originally, um, and you now live in Canada and having lived in the United States as well. Just one question that I I think I find interesting because I don't know myself. Have you found that there has been a difference in the way you were treated for being a Spanish speaker between the United States and Canada?
1: I'm glad that you asked this question. It's a a very good question because yes, there is a difference and I wanna address it from different points of view. Number one, I was living in Chicago for 10 years and I was working for this company. And at, towards the end of my work with them, I had I, I had a visa, working visa, so it's not like I was illegal or something. So um, um, they asked me if I wanted to apply for a green card, right? Like so I could become a, an American citizen at some point. And I saw this as a good opportunity for me, like sort of like to finally have the 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 the, the American dream in 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 me, right? But then at that time, I was so uh, disenchanted with the United States uh, for many reasons. Uh, and I can talk about the reasons in a second as well. Uh, and I think I didn't want to become an American citizen or, or have the green card at that time. So at that time, I was married. And then I talked to my, uh, my wife at that time, uh, now my ex-wife. Uh, what should we do? Should we stay here in the United States or should we move somewhere else? Oh, she will go back to Colombia. And then at that time, I had visited Toronto here in Canada for a couple of times. And a friend of mine told me, hey, listen, you're such a great guy. You are very intellectual and all of those sorts of things. You should totally apply to immigrate to Canada. And then I evaluated the possibilities. Um, and then, yeah, I applied uh, for this Canadian program. And then we both got in uh, into Canada in 2010. And then that's how I got in. But uh, to answer your question, one of the main reasons why I moved to Canada is because exactly that. I think, uh, in my opinion, I experienced racism in, in, in the United States more overt, right, than compared to here in Canada. Because let, let's face it, in Canada, it's also racist, but it's like, once you're here, it's like you don't see, you don't necessarily see it overtly, but little by little you start noticing things like, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's, maybe I didn't get this job. Maybe I, the people are treating me like this because of my name, because of the way I look, because the way I talk, right? But whereas in the United States, most of the things were like, oh, go back to your country, oh, you spec, oh, you Latino, whatever, go back, learn to learn uh, English, things like that. More overt, I remember that clearly. And when I moved here, I was applying for jobs, and then I was like, why am I not getting a job? Why am I not getting a job? Why not getting a job? Why this guy, who's a white person, got this, with this job? And I was like, but I'm having more qualifications in terms of, uh, you know, background, academic background, etc. And, and these things kept coming in the very first three years that I was living here in Toronto. And then little by little, I started noticing that, that uh, although the United States is, uh, has some more overt racism, here is more like covert, like I said, more subtle. And you don't feel it, you don't see it. And I see a lot of friends and people that I know, they keep saying that, oh, Canada is less racist than the United States, which, yes, if you come here for a few days or for, a, for vacation, you don't see it. And it is true, you don't see much these these things, but... but um, but then it's, it's good. Uh, it's good that I, that we think about uh, these things uh, deeply because I was not thinking about this uh, when I was living in the United States uh, deep as deeply as I think it now. Now I sort of double think. Why are these things happening here in Canada that we don't see them? Is because the language that is used is sort of like sugar coating things, and then you don't see it is the language that is used, and you, also because you are a non-native speaker of English, some of the things you. The nuances of culture, you don't understand it much until now, like I sort of take the time to dig deep into, into what happens. Yep. So, so that's
0: interesting to me because um, I think it sort of reminds me of my own experience where um, the, when I live here in the United States and the racism happens, it's actually less overt here than it was when I was in Uh, in South Korea so it was even more overt there so like it's like it's like a a gradient now now let's be clear it was less common there Mm -hmm. because most of the time people were very nice but it was things like the the culture and also there's a language issue right so you know the the, the amount of English that people spoke there was not as much as it is in the United States obviously but uh, when people spoke to me the most common thing that they spoke to me about was the fact that I was black right it was just like you know the same way that you know i was a teacher but like most it was more important to understand for them to let me know that i was black right so i would get back home and i'm like at least it's not like there uh but then there was in a way this even though people were nicer here and again uh, you know I'm in new york so it's a little different um they were no less hateful it was just a little bit you know I I, I tend to find that um there is an inverse correlation between you know quote-unquote niceness and um um you know people being anti-racist because I feel like people who are actually doing anti-racist work are probably not very nice it's not nice work you know what I'm saying like you know so this idea and the reputation Canada has as being a quote-unquote nice place and I mean that in terms of kindness not physical beauty which it obviously is uh is this idea that if they're nice therefore racism is not going to occur but that's that's just not the case it's still it's still a colonial power right or it was um you know so this idea that uh, Canada does not have these problems. They're just different, is is what it seems to be the case, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, like it's not that it, the Canada does not have it, and then there is this assumption abroad that Canada equals nice equals oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's funny because when I travel, I think two two years ago I went to Europe, right? And then I spent like a roughly a month at different places like Germany, Denmark, and different places right and then I would present myself as a Canadian so I I didn't say I'm Colombian or Colombian Canadian so people would ask me where are you from you know you go to different where are you from and I say I'm Canadian and they would look at me and was like oh oh wait a minute you don't look you don't look Canadian I say what do you mean I don't look Canadian you mean because I don't I'm not tall blonde blue eyed speak English quote-unquote properly so I'm not Canadian I say oh no I'm sorry I didn't mean that I say, yeah you mean that (laughs) <laughs> you know yes you meant you really mean that and i had a huge conversation with an american guy it was like the table was full of people from all around the world there was only one american the other ones were europeans and a few like chinese and japanese people and then when we went around asking the question where you're from where you're from so then i say canadian and then nobody said anything but the american was the only one who who sort of stopped by and stopped and said oh, but you, are you really from Canada? I say, yeah, look, here is my, I pull out my passport and I say, here is my passport. So I am Canadian, right? So it's this idea that race uh, is, 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 is the way you look and where you're from is the way you look. And I told Canada. you, Canada is a bunch of people from different parts of the world right, who happen to be here and studying and working and doing things, and then we become Canadians. This is Canada, right? And then there is the other part in which there are these people, Canadians, who were born and raised here who who are, quote-unquote, nice, and it's because the way it is, the way the culture is, is trying to covertly be nice because they don't want to hurt people, and they don't want to use language that's going to hurt you. But in my experience, sometimes Hiding all of these things ultimately hurt you? Like for example, again, with my example about applying for jobs, if they don't tell you the reasons why you didn't get a job because X, Y, Z, then it ended up hurting you because then you don't know what you need, right? But if they upfront tell you, listen, the reason why you didn't get the job is because one, two, three, and this is how you can improve it, then we will never know. And then they do these things in which with the language they tell you no, but in the end it is yes, or they tell you yes, and this is no. so there's this 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 idea that Canada is okay and Canada is cool and Canada is um, uh, sort of nice. I I think it is not necessarily like that.
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned applying for different jobs in 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 Toronto. You're in Toronto. Yeah. Um. And have you found once you've gotten into jobs because you obviously have had the jobs in the last nine years that um, there has been a different way you've been treated by students for example when you've worked with students because you are working in language uh, education so has there been a a different way that you've been seen as a language educator because you know your home language or maybe best way first language whatever is in english
1: it's interesting this question that you mentioned that because i never got the job Oh. At all, so what? Well, <laughs> in my in my first two three years, because I never got a job as a teacher anywhere because of the whatever things are happening here. So with my ex wife, we decided to create this company about teaching languages to children, babies, and preschoolers. Hence, my work with my 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 master's thesis was about that. So we created this company and we 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 taught Spanish to babies and then we hired French teachers, German, Italian teachers to teach babies and to teach preschoolers. And it was well for the first two years, just so we can get a job on the things that we were experts, right? And then after that, uh, I entered into the master's and then I just couldn't keep up with the work. And then and then I, since then I've been a student till now. But going back to your question about how the students treat me, um, I've been a research assistant, so I didn't have much contact with students before. So basically just relations with my supervisor, relations with um, um, people I have worked with, uh, principal investigators, etc., And the relationship have been, has been pretty well, of course. So it was not until last year that I actually got a job as a, as, as, a, as a lecturer at a university. And the interesting thing, I got this job, and I believe the reason why I got this job is because exactly I'm an inter, I, I'm quote unquote an international student. I'm an international person. I understand, I understand students who come from abroad. So I'm teaching TESOL uh, to students, right? And, and then because I definitely understand where, where they're coming from. So I, in a sense, for the university, I am an asset for them which is good I feel I, I feel I feel like it's a, it's a good thing because in a sense I rem, now that I remember when I go into the class and teach I feel that I, the students relate to me and I relate to them because I can tell vivid examples of what it means to come to Canada or come to the United States and feeling the difficulties and the challenges of the language etc so I give vivid examples and they laugh at my examples of when I was learning English when I came to North America and then I sort of give examples of my own personal experience and then I give the theory, example, theory and they like that and they relate that. So in that sense, I feel like my students really like me. So I have never had the chance to have quote unquote white students yet. So I don't have that experience. But with these ones, because these are international students, I think the experience has been uh, relatable.
0: I think that that's actually really important though because you mentioned being seen as an asset as a, as you say, quote-unquote, international student or lecturer at this point, and um, that is, I think, the idea that schools should have, that someone who has experienced similar things to what these students have should be seen as a good way to connect with those students, but you know in this field that's not how most schools think. So it's good that to be in a place where that is the case uh and I know that uh when I worked at the job I had before this current job, you know we had all of these uh, volunteer teachers right because it was a non have money. and so people were volunteers, and if you're getting a volunteer, you're going to get someone who's either like a student or retired because if they're working during the day, they can't volunteer right um And one, like a lot of the people who were retired, they had been teachers for however many decades and they were just sort of lived in the neighborhood. And they were people who didn't, like you couldn't really tell them that uh, the teacher, sorry, the students needed a different perspective. They were the opposite of what uh, you were being seen as, right? As a possible asset because of your experience having learned language. They were just people who, believed in very strict prescriptivism and uh I mean I eventually got rid of them but like it it was I don't I would never it's so foreign to me to have the mindset that someone who has never experienced um the potential disorientation or confusion of you know being a language minority or uh, being a racialized person would be seen as the ideal educator for such students but again then it comes down to what's it like to have white students who are let's say learning to be teachers and I haven't done that either so I don't know
1: (laughs) we don't know and we don't know what they what experience is I I am assuming that they are having white teachers as well I mean I mean but also I believe that they should also experience diverse teachers as well. That is not only the same type of uh, teacher they have when they, when they receive education, right? Because that's mainly the problem is that a lot of white students have white teachers. Therefore, they don't discuss race. They don't discuss the, you know, discrimination necessarily. It's not only until recently in the last five years or so that it, 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 more efforts are put into social justice, anti-discrimination, and courses, etc., cetera, at different schools, which I, I really like. it. I see it coming more often. I've been invited to be on a
0: panel in April on social justice at, my, at the school where I got my master's, and that's good. I'm not complaining to be included on such a panel. Um, sometimes, though, it's going to depend what they ask me. Now, they know my work, so they know what I'm going to say. Well, they wouldn't ask me if they wanted me not to say what I am going to say. But yeah. I often feel sometimes that schools will talk about social justice and they'll be so vague, they never get anywhere. You know, like it's good, but I feel like sometimes that schools need to push it a little bit more because, you know, they'll somehow find a way to talk about social justice without talking about anything of substance. and you know you can't say they didn't talk about social justice once they've done it but sometimes I feel like they're just CYA you know cover your butt sort of thing where they're like we said we said that we would do social justice and we did it so leave me alone Um,
1: yeah I was just thinking that when you say schools need to push the and this is this agenda is happening right now different schools, uh, like even you know uh, higher education, etc, in which they hire more quote unquote, people of color in order to have a, di- a more diverse faculty, which is good, but I feel like they do it not because of if this is the right thing to do, but this is because they need to feel a quota that they need to they need to oh my God, how many people we have oh you know, we have. 10 white people so we need to have two people of color so we can fill in this new agenda that the government whatever it is taking is doing it so i don't see it much as they they really from the bottom of their hearts want to make changes but they're doing it because there is a law there is something that is pushing them to do it so i feel like sometimes we the people of color are like tokens that are yep. being put there just to, to 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 make them to make the the, the them feel better about the whole institution or like to put them on, on a face of the website or whatever thing, right?
0: I was on my undergraduate school's website several times just for existing. <laughs> so uh, I know exactly what it's like to be used as a marketing tool. Um and I think that one of the ways it's going to need to change is just two main things that I think needs to change with this stuff. There's, first of all, it depends on w- which context we're talking about, right? But let's say we're talking about masters or whatever teacher training programs, even if it's a certificate or something, right? So I'm talking about a program where the students are pretty much predominantly white. In those programs, you're gonna to need, to, to need to hire more faculty of color, or instructors of color, depending on whether it's faculty, it doesn't matter at this point, to, to, for my point, um, and allow them to be really direct and honest about race or other types of oppression. Um, and that's already a big pill for them to swallow because uh, so many such students will be uncomfortable with it. Uh, they'll just, because I remember, I, at one of the presentations I went to at AERA, uh, was a, a black female professor or assistant professor of uh, it was TESOL or something like it. And she said her students um, didn't like talking about race because they just wanted to learn how to be a teacher. And it was like, come on people. Um, <laughs> uh, and then another thing is even if they don't have uh, faculty of color, which they need to, but that is a different issue. The white, faculty need to talk about this stuff too, because then it's, I think sometimes it's easy for them to dismiss us as, uh, like if I talk to someone about race, for example, uh, someone might, someone who doesn't really want to listen will just say, oh, he's just agreed because he's been through some things, right? So it's easy to be, so they can nod and be like, oh yeah, that's bad. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and, and not care, but if they're actually getting it from the people who look like them, then I, here's the thing, I will never understand what that's like because I can't be there if they're just if it's them talking to each other, I will never be in the room, right, technically right. by definition, so that's one thing and then on the, other, on the other side, they need people in charge who are people of color, and that's people of color and different sexualities, like all these things, but like it's not just because we do need more instructors of color whether these instructors are professors or depending on the program. But like, who's running the program? Because they hire us as, as, you know, one of us to say that, okay, well, we need three more of them, right? They don't say it like that, but that's what happens. But at what point is the person who's actually in charge different? You know, like, where, that's, they, we want diversity, but to mean diversity without power
1: is what's the point is just... I, I like what you're saying Diver- diversity without power what is the point and i think it made me think about changes how we how we make this change meaning we the scholars researchers uh, educators you name it so in order to change we need to be open to those changes and those people in the position of power need to be open to the changes and even also the students the white students should also be open to that change but that doesn't happen you know over time to talk about race to talk about privileges it has to be uncomfortable you as a student right as a white student you need to be uncomfortable right they have to feel it you have to embody it because that is how we people of color have felt for so long so why don't you feel uncomfortable? Yes, feel free to cry in the classroom, feel free to get up and go because it is uncomfortable. And we need to go to a place in which they need to understand that talking about race and talking about uh, you know discrimination and you name it, it is uncomfortable and it has been uncomfortable for us, for the people of color, black people, indigenous peoples, et cetera. So why don't you also feel it? And feel it for a moment, for a second, but also beyond that is, how do you change it is how to take an action on that because yeah, you can cry and you can yell and you can, you know, make a fuss about it, but is how do you translate into something that is really going to make changes to you and to those around you. So I think, I believe, for us as teachers, educators, researchers, et cetera, is how we translate this message to them so they can actually not only say, oh, yeah, there is race. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Oh, my God, yes, I know I hold white privilege. But it's what are you doing, you know, to take that action to change yourself and help others to survive, for example. I think
0: that, unfortunately, I'm going to say something pessimistic and then optimistic because I think you kind of have to do both but um, I think like with white privilege for example and you can use other forms you can gender and so forth but you're speaking about race here you know white privilege as a term existed since the early 90s right or whatever year it was you know Peggy McIntosh and all that and um, it takes a while to click where it spreads but you're now getting all the way to the point where some white people will say, I acknowledge my white privilege. And some white people will say, oh, stop talking about this race stuff. Well, the people who are in the second category, I'm not worried about them. They're always going to be like that. But the problem is now the term has become so watered down that it's just something people say. To say, I have privilege. They don't do anything about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so they're just like, I have white privilege. It's like, okay. Um but what are you gonna do about it? And then you mentioned, you know, people, and that's basically white fragility you're talking about, right? When people get really upset and they get uncomfortable. And they're like, What's happening, what do I do? Um, and then of course we have to like comfort them. It's Like we shouldn't, but like mm-hmm. in front of us, like that discomfort is necessary. Like you, you can't do this without being uncomfortable, yeah. at least to some extent. It's what do you do with that discomfort? Because I think that there are, and maybe I'm just a colleague about this, but I think that there are more people in power who would be willing to actually make changes if they knew what to do with that discomfort. We have to deal with this discomfort all day, every day. Just like, or as soon as we leave our home, right? We gotta deal with it, right? We know we have to comport ourselves in a certain way in public so that this and this and this doesn't happen, right? I know when I get on the subway, and this I do every day, uh, and a group of Black teenagers gets on the subway, I have to pause and think to myself, okay, what's going to happen here? I have no problem with what they're doing. What is everyone else going to think about what they're doing, Right. And then I say to myself, okay, if something, if someone is, is, is speaking negatively to them, I should step in. But what's going to happen to me if I step in? And you know, it like all of these things I have to go through, right, To just to think. And I, I, it's not too different from some, I'm not comparing to two, but I'm saying it's not too different from some of the calculations women have to go through just to be in the public either. Like all of these people who are in marginalized groups have to go through these calculations just to be in public or to be in the workplace or whatever it is. And you know, I think it's really important for people, once they feel that discomfort, to, to have a way to either process it or to just sit with it. And then what do they do afterwards? Because if they just get to the point of feeling guilty, guilt is a paralytic, right? If you're guilty, you're not going to do it. You know, if, right. if you just feel guilty, you're just going to try and get that guilt off of you, right? Yeah. Oh no, oh no. What do I like that's not forget about that. Like unless you literally went out and committed a hate crime, I'm not worried about your guilt, right? Like it doesn't it's not it's not useful to be feeling guilty. What would be useful is like how can you move forward? What what are the actionable steps that you can take to to make these changes? And if you are a person in power, it's not that complicated, but If you are just a person, you might say, well, I can't do anything. Well, I think the only thing that we can do as people of color, because it really shouldn't be our responsibility, but it always is anyway, um, is give them like a a direction down which they should travel in order to make the changes. We should not be the ones helping them make the changes because they need to figure it out for themselves. Otherwise, they're never going to learn. But we can give them a couple of like, all right, go start doing that. Here's a, here's a reading list, right? You know, here are some things to watch. And then come back and talk to me. Because if, if someone goes and they genuinely read and internalize a bunch of stuff, then I'm definitely willing to talk to them about what they can do. But not, I'm not trying to talk to you and explain all of this stuff to you if you don't want to do the work, you know? Yeah.
1: No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I relate to what you're saying because you, you talk about guilt and I know a lot of people like, like they want to exude the, their 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 fears and their emotions. They may write a paper to excel that pressure of being white, et cetera. You can say it out loud and feel good about it after that and say, okay, I feel better about this. But you still have that privilege. You have not lucid, it, Right. And then the question that we should ask is who are we, the people of color, to tell them how to manage this discomfort, right? Who is going to teach them, to educate them? And this is a question that we've been asking with folks here in Toronto with a few friends. Like, is it our job as people of color to teach them, to educate them? And I like the way you said about give them direction. You know, they need to figure it out. But sometimes I feel like they don't, they don't want to do it because they already have their privilege and they are fearful of losing that privilege. The moment they enter into this realm of talking about race and talking about their privilege, their fear is, if I keep talking about this and I keep bashing about myself as a white person, I may lose that privilege. And that's that's the, the issue. That they Some of these people don't do it because they may lose that privilege and they don't want to lose it. We already lost it already as people of color, we were born with no privilege, so there's, there's nothing we can lose. But for them, it's that lot of loss. Yeah, that that fear, that loss aversion.
0: You know, that I think they've shown that people are, I don't twice as afraid of, of an equivalent loss as they are um, eager to risk a potential gain. So I think it's all it's it's two things, and that's the last thing I'm going to say, so that we can sort of tie off the knot. Um, They're afraid, uh, not just because it's uncomfortable, but also because deep down, as much as they might dismiss the reality of it, as much as they might downplay it, they know how poorly marginalized people are treated. Like, they know. They know. They can deny it, but they know. There's very few of them who just genuinely don't know. They're just choosing to ignore the reality right? It's ignorance more than like, you know, lack of intelligence or something like that. Um, And they also fear that if they were marginalized, their lives would be terrible. Like if they not, you know, if they gave up their power, how terrible their lives were. But the fact of the matter is, and I say this a lot, and maybe it's not true. I really don't think if they gave up their power, that people of color or other marginalized groups would turn it around and treat them the way that we have been treated all this time. Some, I mean, I understand the feelings of wanting revenge, but fact of the matter is we just want to be left alone and not have to do all that calculation every time we leave our houses. And they can't really conceive of giving up power and not being treated terribly. Like, that's just out, out of the realm of possibility to them. So
1: they would just rather hold on to the power. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. So I think the ultimate question, just to wrap up again too with the conversation, is a person like you and a person like me, what is our role in society as sort of researchers, educators, and public figures now that we have this podcast and now that we have uh, this quote-unquote power of getting you know to different places in our platforms is that a job is, is our role what is our role what do you think girl uh if i could use a,
0: a verb i used to think that our role was to drag these people into the light but now i realize you know you can't you know you say you can't teach them it, You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? Right. You know, um, I think the only thing we can do is bring the horse to the water and maybe push their head down to the surface. (laughs) So that they really have to put a lot of effort in not to drink. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can't make them drink. We can't do that. If, they, if, if we force them to drink, they're just going to spit it back out, right? right? But we can bring them to the water and bring their face all the way down to the surface and hope that they'll just open their mouths and take some water in. So I, right. you know, to, so I think that, that that's, what, that's, that's, that's what we can do. We can make it so they really have to make an effort not to drink this stuff in. Got and right. if they want to make that effort, if they want to really... Just,
1: just like
0: force themselves not to drink at that point. Well, we did our jobs, and none of
1: us. Definitely, now something that I say to myself and other folks out there is, um, we definitely cannot force people to do things they don't want to do, especially if they don't want to do it from the from their core. So, what I the metaphor that I use is to spark curiosity. So, I put out stuff there in a way, in a matter that makes people think huh wait a minute let me think about it i think this is important and i think this may change things so sort of like a little light that you put out there and then i hope that at some point people pick up this light and sort of they want to light themselves so it's like a spark and then they hope it sparks them and others that's kind of my personal role with the podcast and the work that i do as well
0: yeah All right. Well, thanks, Yaseed, for coming on to my podcast. Um, And I enjoyed being on yours as well. This was a really interesting conversation. So I hope that our listeners agree and find it to have been compelling. Um, And I will, you know, I I, I hope that
1: uh, you found it interesting as well. Yes. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is a great crossover of episodes i really dig it i think i like it and i really hope our audiences like it as well and hope to spark that curiosity for not knowledge and this unstandardized english and chasing encounters together to the to the next level thank you so much for the invitation
0: yeah thanks for coming on
1: <laughs>